following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. It's my great pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker, uh, Dr. Richard Middleton. Um, and why don't you come up now, Richard? Dr. Middleton is a biblical scholar and prolific author. And uh, he, some of his writings began to influence me and, and the, the others who founded this church 10 years ago before we ever had a chance to meet. So I don't know if I've ever said thank you for that, but thank you for that. And, and, and Scott uh, took the first course I ever taught at Northeastern Seminary. Yes. 2002. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dr. Middleton is um, the only, I think it's the only one I was able to take with you because I yeah. was almost done, but you were still one of my favorite professors. So <laughs> um, this is uh, a great honor to have you here with us today. And uh, we're starting a new series on the family of Abraham which fits in well with our theme for the year, which I think I've told you about, which is that we want to be shaped by the words of Scripture and understand our place in the story of God that is told in Scripture and continues in our lives and around us today. And uh, Dr. Middleton has prepared a great message uh, along those lines. He's going to kick off this series uh, with the words that he's brought on Abraham. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you for being here. Would you, you welcome so Dr. Middleton today? Can you hear me? Does the volume work all right? Okay. Oh, I brought my own water, but that's fine. I'll put it up here then. <clears throat> so the last time, oh, I, I go back to when Trinity Church used to meet here. I preached uh, um, pulpit supply in the summer of 1987 at Trinity Church in this building. Uh, what I remember most about it was there was a one man in the church who worked nights and came straight from work to church. He snored every Sunday, loudly in the church. I had to speak over his snoring. Um, I also um, know Scott from back when he and Jason were in Capax Day meeting in the, was it Henrietta area in a kind of a, uh, what kind of building was that? Kind of industrial building. It was very interesting. I remember that. I remember the sermon ended with Jason throwing a football at the congregation. That's all I remember from that. <laughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> so, um, Perhaps unlike many of you, I am racially Jewish. My mom was Jewish. That makes me formally a Jew. Though I was never raised Jewish, and I became a Christian very young. Um, when Scott asked me to preach in this series, he, this is what was the agenda. He said, explain how Abraham fits into the whole Bible. Uh, so I said, do you want a sermon or do you want a lecture? He said, how about combine it a little bit? So you're going to get a hybrid uh, preaching, teaching kind of thing here. So would you open in a word of prayer with me? Let's pray together. Incomprehensible God, you who have brought the world into being and have revealed yourself in the face of Jesus, teach us now through Abraham what we need to know to understand our mission and our task in this world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Abraham is on a journey. Now, surely you mean Abraham was on a journey. Well, we're going to get to that. We'll get to the journey of Abraham in Genesis 12, when he left his home and headed for a new destination. But Abraham is still on a journey. This is the journey of the figure of Abraham and his role in the story of Israel, in Christianity, in Judaism, and in Islam. 
What Abraham stands for, what he represents, this ideal, this vision that has traveled down to us from ancient scripture has come through later scripture, through history and tradition. And you know, Abraham is still journeying. He's journeying today, stopping along the way with us, with our understandings, with our lives, with our faith. But he moves beyond us to a larger goal, to a telos, an end, a destination point of a new creation. Now, Abraham is the figure and symbol and the foretaste of that new creation. And we too are on an Abrahamic journey. We are impelled by this compelling figure. Sometimes, I've got to admit, repelled by this figure. Like when he goes to plunge the knife into his son Isaac and the angel has to stop him. Abraham, Abraham, stop. Don't do anything to the boy. Did he really think God meant him to do that? Come on. What kind of God do you serve? But even then, something compels us to keep journeying with Abraham. So Abraham starts his journey in Genesis chapter 12. Listen to the first three momentous verses of Genesis 12. This is my own translation. Now Yahweh said to Avram, Go forth from your land and from your family and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I'll make your name great. Now be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you but the one who disdains you I will curse. And by you, all the families of the earth will bless one another. The call of Abraham comes out of nowhere. There's nothing to prepare us for it in the preceding accounts. After a genealogy in which Abraham's family lineage is traced, his father is Terah, his wife is Sarai, his nephew is Lot, suddenly, in 12.1, God speaks. In fact, it says, Yahweh speaks. The God of Israel, the God who later speaks to Moses and the prophets. This very God. And how does God speak? In an audible voice? In Abraham's mind? We are not told. God just says, go. The Hebrew is lech lecha. In fact, this lectionary reading in Hebrew synagogues is known as the lech lecha reading. Lech lecha means go for yourself. It's not usually translated called the ethical dative. It kind of means you. Yes, you go. Nobody else. I'm talking to you. And we're told in verse 4 that Abraham went as Yahweh told him. But what exactly does God tell Abraham besides just go? Christian tradition has often claimed to find seven promises of God in these verses. But the matter is a little bit more complicated than that because there are in Hebrew two imperatives or commands that God gives Abraham accompanied each one by a bunch of promises, but they're not exactly all separate promises. Some are general, some specify the details. So God's speech begins with an imperative. Go. That's pretty clear. Leave. Separate. Literally, walk. That's what the verb says. Walk. Walk away from the land, from the Eretz, where you're living. Walk away from your large family or clan, your moledet. And walk away from your father's house, your bit av. And father's house in Hebrew is a technical term for what we would call today an extended family. Leave your father's extended family. Start your own. Move on. Walk away from it all, God says, to a destination that I'm going to show you. But Abraham doesn't know where that is yet. 
sort of like us in our journey, in our walk of faith. We may have an inkling of the direction, but journeys end. Does any of us know where that's going to end up? Will you, do you know where you're going to be next year even? I'm not always sure. But things do get revealed when you walk by faith, not sight. Things get revealed bit by bit. After Abraham begins his journey in verse 4, at the ripe old age of 75, up in Haran, where we, which now is Syria, he travels south to the land of Canaan in verse 5. He keeps traveling in verse 6 and passes through the land to a place called Shechem. And then and only then does God tell Abraham, um, by the way, this is the land I'm going to give you. Oh, thanks a lot, Lord. But I had to get there first, huh? And I give you and your descendants. And then Abraham travels some more in verse 8 to the hill country east of Bethel. And then he journeys further south in verse 9 to the farthest tip of Canaan, the Negev Desert. And then he moves on to Egypt, but that's another story. So the first promise God gives Abraham is, I'm going to show you a land. All right, but only if you start journeying. Then follows a new promise in verse 2. I'll make of you a great nation. And so begin the two paired promises of land and descendants that God will grant Abraham that define the book of Genesis. Now this promise of descendants of a great nation is going to be seriously challenged by the childlessness of Abraham and Sarai for many, many years to come. And this childlessness gets signaled already in the genealogy of Abraham where we're told, now Sarah was barren and she had no child thanks, it's going to be a problem, this promise of descendants. And we all know what happens later on with the attempt to find a child through Hagar. <clears throat> it's going to be a problem. But this promise of descendants and the promise of land will also be directly challenged by Abraham when he asks God in chapter 15, what are you going to give me, Lord, since I'm childless? And then later in the chapter, how do I know I'm going to have a land? And God actually answers him. But God does not just promise that Abraham will have descendants. These promises are more specific than that. Your descendants will be so many, they'll be a nation. Later on in the book of Genesis, God reaffirms and expands the promise, stating that Abraham's descendants will be so numerous, they'll be like the dust of the earth, like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the heavens. And not only will his descendants be a great or large nation, but they will be the source of many nations, indeed a company of nations, and even kings will come from his line. That's ultimately quite a future God has in store for this man. But even before we come to these later extrapolations of the promise of descendants, God in chapter 12 already begins to flesh out the promise by adding in verse 2, I'll bless you. That is, I will cause you and your descendants to flourish. Now, blessing, barakah in Hebrew, is the most comprehensive term in the Bible for flourishing. Christians like to quote the word shalom as a metaphor for, for blessing and healing, but it's actually the word barakah, blessing, that is the broadest term in the Bible itself. So I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And finally, God adds, I will make your name, your reputation, great. So we have three promises in a row in verse 2. One generalized promise of blessing nestled 
between two specific promises of greatness. Great nation, blessing, great name. And here, this promise of a great name echoes something from the previous chapter of Genesis, if you know the story, where the builders of a city, later known as Babel, Babel, or Babylon, same word, decide that they want to make a great name for themselves in the building of the city. By their imperial civilization, built, as we now know, on the backs of slaves, they hoped for a great reputation, one that would earn for themselves that the nations of the world would know who they are. And today we know the name, Babylon. They have become a symbol of greatness in a certain sense in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation particularly. Babylon is a symbol for the Roman Empire, for corporate systemic evil. And it's come down in the Rastafarian movement also as a metaphor for systemic evil. So Bob Marley describes the Babylon system as a vampire and sings about chanting down Babylon. And the story of Genesis 1 through 11 that begins with creation and ends with the Babel story is a narrative of world history prior to Abraham that sets up the Abraham story. It tells a tragic tale of a world gone wrong. A story that starts with God bringing into being a flourishing world that is pronounced very good in Genesis 1.31, accompanied by God's gracious call to human beings to be his representatives made in his image, to reign on earth and till and keep the creational garden. So the Bible starts with a people and a land and God's intention for blessing. And yet we have sought to use our power Not to tend creation in stewardship and community. But we've used that power against God in rebellion, first of all, and then against each other in violence. So the originating sin recounted in Genesis 3 results in a world that's now out of whack. It leads to murder in the next generation as Cain kills his brother Abel, then to revenge killing for an injury when Lamech kills a young man for stepping on his toes, basically. And then violence fills the earth in Genesis 6. Now, if violence fills the earth, and it sounds so modern, this could have been written yesterday, but it's written thousands of years ago, right? If violence fills the earth, this means that humans have multiplied and filled the earth, as God asked them to do. But instead of functioning as God's representatives, as his image in the temple of creation, now what's the function of an image in a temple? When you go to a pagan temple, the image mediates the blessings of the God and the presence of God from heaven to earth. The image is the site of divine presence. We are the image of God. We are renewed as the temple of the Holy Spirit, as a church. But our purpose was to manifest God's presence in the world. Instead, we fill the world with violence and destruction. Earthly life has become, as Genesis 6 puts it, corrupt or ruined by human action. And that's given as the reason for the flood. But you know, God's restart with Noah didn't change anything. The text tells us in Genesis 8 that God forswears another flood, never again. Why? Because the human heart is still evil. Nothing's changed. And God needs now to find another way to address the problem of human violence and the sin of the heart. And he chooses to do this through the man Abraham and his descendants. As a famous Jewish midrash on the book of Genesis puts it, I will create Adam first, so that if he sins, Abraham may come and set things right. 
That's the Jewish interpretation of Abraham. See, the question came in the Midrash, Abraham's such a great man, why didn't God just start with him? He said, well, it's okay, God said, I'll start with Adam. If that doesn't work out, I'll send Abraham and he'll fix it. That, of course, is nowhere clearly stated in Genesis 12. It is implicit. So let me quote the great Jewish theologian, Martin Buber, the writer of the book, Ein Thou, very famous theologian. This is his interpretation of the call of Abraham, the father of Israel. We are to trace the meaning of this people's origin, that is his own people, Israel, back to the meaning of the origin of the world, back to the intention of the creator for his creation. To be sure, the Bible does not present us with theological statements about this intention and this meaning. It presents us with a story only. But the story is theology. Biblical theology is narrated theology. Flannel graphs and all. The Bible cannot be comprehended if not comprehended in this way as a story. And this reading, which goes back to ancient Jewish tradition, of Abraham as the beginning of the resolution of human sin, is what leads the Christian Old Testament scholar Terry Fretheim, one of my famous favorite um, authors, to call Genesis 12, 1 to 3 a fulcrum text. Do you know what a fulcrum is? This is a, a, tech, a turning point that shifts what's happening in redemptive history. And Fretheim goes on to say that the God's selection of Abraham, this narrowing down to one man and one nation, the election of Israel, this initially exclusive move, as he calls it, is for a maximally inclusive end, the redemption of all people and the redemption of the world, what Jews today call tikkun olam, the healing of the world. You see, Abraham's journey, just like ours, is not for himself alone. It has a much wider application. And yet, it is also Abraham's journey. And he does need to go. But so much is at stake in the journey that God promises to support him with blessing. God's promises to Abraham in verse 2 accompany and undergird that first command, go. We are never just called to act. We are called to act in response to God's graciousness, which upholds us. And these promises God makes to Abraham commit God to uphold this journeying pilgrim, to surround him with bracha, to bring shalom and flourishing to him, which in the ancient world must include descendants, a family, and also a land, a place to live. You see, Abraham and his family are a microcosm of humanity in the earth. They're a small sample of the redemption of what God intends for humanity. But lest Abraham and we think that all this needed is for him to go, to start on a journey, surrounded and upheld by God's blessing and grace, God goes on to issue a second command, a second imperative to Abraham. So verse 2 ends with, Now be a blessing. Veye, bracha, be a blessing. Now if you have your Bible open, you probably would say, you're scratching your head because that's not the way most Bibles translate the end of verse 2. Not as a command, rather as a purpose statement. So that you will be a blessing. It's typically translated as one other promise God makes to Abraham. You will be a blessing. And that's a perfectly justifiable translation. Since an imperative, a command, at the end of a clause like this in Hebrew, can signify purpose. Yet the fact remains it is grammatically a commandment, an imperative. And none other than Martin Buber, again, 
who translated the Bible into German in the middle of the 20th century, a beautiful translation, I've been told, noted and emphasized what he called this unprecedented imperative, and so translated it as be a blessing. And Buber is followed by another Jewish scholar, Everett Fox, who has translated the Pentateuch into English, the five books of Moses. You can buy it in the bookstore. Beautiful translation. He takes it also as a command, and I want to follow that Jewish tradition. So I take it that God gives two sets of instructions to Abraham. First, go, walk, travel, move on. Okay, he's done that. But also, be a blessing. Which means no cheap grace. All the good stuff God has planned for Abraham won't happen automatically. It takes a little effort on his part. He has a contribution to make. He has to set a living example of blessing. His people are to embody in their lives, in their community, a people who live wisely, in harmony with the God of creation, and in harmony with each other. And so they will model to the world God's intent for human life from the beginning. And this command, be a blessing, like the first, is accompanied and undergirded by a series of promises. It's not just, you got something to do. I'm going to help you in this. So, you see, we are not in control of our lives, our context, our flourishing. We can't make things happen just by willing them. But God promises, in the wake of this second command in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. That is, I will cause to flourish those who recognize in you my blessing and who seek that blessing. But the one who disdains you or the one who makes light of you, I will curse. And that word curse is the same word in the Garden of Eden story when the earth is cursed, when it no longer flourishes and brings forth fruit. But note the assumption. Those who bless you, plural, the one who dares make light of you, singular. As if that would not be the typical response. God expects there to be blessing. And yet, curse is often the typical response. Making light of God's people, disdaining them, is often the typical response. You know why? Because then and now, God's people have not always embodied or modeled blessing. We have not been setting a living example of what genuine human flourishing might be. And so this is an opportunity for our reflection, for our self-evaluation, both individually and as a community of faith. Is artisan church, am I, being shaped and molded by the divine artist into a well-crafted vessel? Are we contributing to that dazzling, beautiful work of art that God wants his people to be? Do we, not for instrumental purposes, but because we generally yearn to be the people God wants, do we live in such a way that when others see the divine craftsmanship in our lives, <clears throat> it takes their breath away. And they say, so this is what human life can be? That's the mission of Artisan Church, right? That's the mission of the Abrahamic journey. So the culminating promise <clears throat> that God gives Abraham at the end of verse 3 is, and by you all the families of the earth will... Hmm, how do you translate that now? Most translations say, all the families of the earth shall be blessed by you, through you. The English passive voice. 
which suggests that Abraham and his descendants will be the source or the channel of blessing. When we say, you know, when I grew up in a church, in, in the pietistic evangelical church, I said, so-and-so was a blessing to me. That meant he made me feel good. Right? That's what being a blessing means. You touch someone's life. That's not what the Hebrew idiom of being a blessing means. It means to embody blessing. To be a blessing is the opposite of being a curse. And we're told in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 24, that in the Babylonian exile, the last king of Israel, Zedekiah, and his cronies would become, quote, a horror, an evil thing to all the kingdoms of the earth, a disgrace, a byword, a taunt, and a curse. People would think of them and see a negative example and mutter under their breath, cursing. That's what it means to be a curse. Well, Jeremiah later says, it gives us an example of when this happened, of such a curse, in chapter 29. He says, on account of them, this curse will be used by the exiles from Judah in Babylon. Yahweh make you like Zedekiah, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. It's not a positive example. Not a positive example at all. One, just an illustration of a contemporary example of that is the name Adolf Hitler. Use that name, it's a curse. It's a negative example. Nobody wants to be like that. You can think of many other examples. But Abraham and his descendants are to be the very opposite. They are to be such a positive example that they generate blessing on people's lips. So as Jacob puts it in his blessing to his sons, he mentions Joseph's two sons and says, By Israel you will invoke blessings, saying, God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And if Abraham is a blessing, then people will say, I want to be like that. That's an example of human life at its best. Does the church in America today, does the church in Rochester, do our lives evoke blessing or curse on the lips of observers? What is the church modeling? And it turns out that the best translation at the end of Genesis 12, 3 is not that all the nations will be blessed by you, but that by you all the nations of the world will bless themselves or bless each other when they want to affirm the flourishing they desire for themselves or others they'll point to you as the model so Isaiah 61 tells us that the descendants of Israel shall be known among the nations and their offspring shall be known among the peoples and all who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed can people say that of us and yes, ultimately, it does mean that blessing would flow to the nations. Since being attracted to Abraham's flourishing probably will mean being attracted in some cases to Abraham's God. Maybe even seeking this God actively. As when Zechariah 8 tells us, envisioning the future, in those days, ten men from nations of every language shall take hold of a Jew, grasping his garment, say, let's go with you. For we've heard God is with you. Does that happen to the church today? You see, Abraham is on a journey. The same, in one sense, his journey really starts in Genesis 12, but in another sense, it goes back to the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of humanity, with God's purposes for the world, which have never yet reached their fruition and culmination. And Abraham's journey also continues into the future, the immediate future, would be the remainder of the Abraham story. And you're going to be hearing about that in the weeks to come. 
Are we warranted in asking, I think we are, when we read about the treatment of Hagar, the Egyptian slave, by Sarah and Abraham? Are they embodying in their actions God's purposes for blessing and flourishing towards Hagar? Is that the kind of family God wants? Or later when Jacob deceives his father Isaac and tricks his brother Esau out of a blessing and begins a history of enmity between the nations of of Edom and Israel. Is that the embodiment of blessing that God wants for the Abrahamic family? And later when Joseph's brothers fake his death and leave him to die in a pit, only then to mercifully sell him into slavery in Egypt. Is that a model of Abrahamic blessing? In these and in other parts of the Abraham story, do we see the embodiment of blessing or curse? The call of Abraham, I've come to believe, may be read as an ethical norm by which we evaluate later scripture, not just in the book of Genesis, but also the rest of the Bible, the rest of the story of Israel, the leaving of Egypt, the conquest and settlement of the promised land, the time of judges, the rise of the Israelite monarchy, the division of the kingdom after Solomon, the decline of the monarchy, the time of the prophets, the exile in Babylon, which recapitulates the exile from the garden of the first human couple, which recapitulates the scattering of Babel. God doesn't tolerate pretensions to power for too long. And then the return from exile, the return to the land of Judah, which came to be known as the second temple period, the world of the New Testament, and the grafting in of the Gentiles into God's people. The whole history of God's people, right up to today, of Jew and Gentile, can be viewed under the rubric of whether we are being a blessing, whether we are embodying God's purposes as a living example of what God desires, a prime instantiation of blessing. But also, uh, well, let me me just stop for a second. I've read the purpose statement for Artisan Church, and I've read the, 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 the biblical text upon which your name is built, right? Ephesians 2.10. Can you quote that to me, or do I have to read it to you? You know that well, right? We are God's workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Literally, for us to walk in, is what it says. So being a blessing means being a model or exemplar of the artistry God wants to create among his people. But then it also means, by extension, that we would attract others to acknowledge the God who is the source of flourishing. So there is indeed a missional element to embodying blessing. And ultimately, the call of Abraham comes, even in ancient Jewish tradition, to be interpreted as missional. God wants to richly bless the people of Abraham as a microcosm of his own purposes for the world, yes. But ultimately, these people are to be a channel of blessing to the rest of the world. So by the time of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, in the 3rd or 2nd century before Christ, do you know how the end of Genesis 12.3 is translated in Greek? Through you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is an interpretation that now the modeling of blessing ought to result in the blessing of others. Ultimately, both the family of Abraham and the nations, the Gentiles, need God's blessing. That's the explicit point in Peter's sermon in Acts 3. Speaking to his fellow Israelites, he explains that Jesus 
has fulfilled the Abrahamic task of bringing blessing. You are the descendants of the prophets and the covenant God gave to your ancestors when he said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So when God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your sins. So before Jesus can be the savior of the world, which we confess in John 3.16, he's the savior of Israel, restoring them to the blessing God intended, which is what salvation means. And then Paul goes on in Galatians 3 to also quote Genesis 12.3 and apply the blessing to the Gentiles, the nations, the families of the earth, all of whom can be blessed through Abraham. For God's plan was never just for one specific people out of all nations and people groups. God's maximally inclusive end was for an international people of God, which according to Revelation 7 is a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And Revelation 5 uses the same description to say these ones have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb and made into a kingdom and priests to serve God by reigning on earth, which is, of course, the original human purpose in Genesis 1. Have dominion over the earth as my stewards. Salvation is nothing other than the restoration of God's original purposes for the flourishing of earthly life. And this blessing cannot be hoarded. And that's true not just in the New Testament, that's also true in the Old Testament. Let me leave you with a quotation from Isaiah 19, a prophetic oracle against Egypt, judging Egypt, bringing um, God's punishment on them for their sins. Nevertheless, it says, I will smite Egypt and heal Egypt. Two sides. And this is the healing. Here is the vision of an alternative future. Did you know this text is in the Bible? Listen to this. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of Egypt and a monument to Yahweh at its border. And this will be a sign and witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to him because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender to rescue them. Interesting. When Moses, people cried out, God sent Moses to Israel. He will deliver Egypt. So Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge Yahweh. But not just Egypt, those who enslaved Israel, but also Assyria, the nation that invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom, against whom Isaiah also prophesied. In that day, there'll be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt. The Egyptians go to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the earth. Yahweh of hosts will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Assyria, my handiwork. Oh, and Israel, my inheritance. Did you know that was in the Bible? The reason Egypt can be God's people, or Assyria can be God's handiwork, the reason that artisan church can exist, is because God has made enemies into friends and has set us on a journey of faith because of Abraham and his journey. I pray that we might be faithful to that Abrahamic journey as we continue to walk, to go, as Abraham did, and to embody blessing 
to the glory of God, to our own healing, and to the salvation of others. Amen. Thank you so much. Um, wow. <laughs> I was sitting listening to all that Dr. Middleton had to say and thinking, how do I invite us into communion following that? And there's every, every two minutes I would think of another thing and say, oh, that's, that's the handle to communion for us this morning. That's the thing. And I just, there's so many, so much beauty in that story uh, and so much to rejoice in, and to be challenged by, that I think it would be best if I just invited you to communion and tried, I rather did not try to make a direct connection because I would probably ruin the moment. But in this table, in this sacrament, in this bread and the wine, we receive God's invitation to us. We remember the sacrifice of his son Jesus We observe and memorialize his death and resurrection. And we eat spiritual food. And I think um, this morning it might be nice for us to think about this not as uh, a ritual, but as a meal. That's how, after all, Jesus presented it to his disciples, isn't it? Because when you sit down, have you noticed when you sit down to a meal with somebody, whether they are like you or unlike you, whether they like you or don't like you, whether that feeling is reciprocated or not, something levels when we have a meal with a person. And I like to imagine that telos, that end where we will be able to see the glory of God represented in the fact that we sit at the table with Assyria and Egypt. And all the families of the earth. So as you come to the table this morning, which, by the way, is an open table, you need not be a member of our church or our denomination or anything like that to partake of this sacrament. Simply a member of God's family, seeking to follow Jesus and trust in him uh, this morning in this place. As you come to partake of the sacrament, tear a piece of the bread and dip it in either the wine or the juice, think of it as a meal. Look at the person taking communion next to you and imagine yourself at the table with him or her and with each other. That is truly communion. And we will continue to worship God Uh, in song as we take this sacrament and uh, the table is open now. Respond as you feel the Spirit's leading in your life. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.